Every culture in the history of the world has been fascinated by the idea of an afterlife. There seems to be a longing within all of us for a world beyond this one. Think about our most popular fairy tales. How do most of them end? They end with the enemies of love being vanquished, with true love being reunited. And then what's the last line of the fairy tale? They all lived happily ever after. It's interesting that none of these stories ever end with, and they lived happily for a while, until the princess got smallpox and died an early death. The end. No, none of them end that way. The princess dying of smallpox just doesn't quite have the same ring to it as they all lived happily ever after. No, you see, in our fantasy stories, we want eternal life, eternal happiness and bliss. We want life to continue after this one ends. The problem is, we have no way of knowing what or if anything is on the other side of this life. That is, unless someone from the afterlife has broken into our world to tell us about it. And that brings us to our story today. Today we come to Mark chapter 12, and we're going to read verses 18 through 27. 18 through 27. Mark chapter 12 and verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her. Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses and the account of the burning bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are badly mistaken. This is God's word. 
The Sadducees who are confronting Jesus in this story were very important religious and political leaders in Israel. They were the elite of the elite. And they did not believe in the afterlife. Now, many Jews at that time believed in a resurrection of all believers at the end of time. Of course, Christians today believe this too. We believe that when you die, you go immediately into the presence of Jesus. And that when Jesus returns, he will bring heaven with him. And he will then resurrect our former bodies to live in the new heavens and the new earth that he creates. But the Sadducees thought this idea was stupid and foolish. They essentially only did religion as politics. So they used Moses' teachings only as a guide for society. And that's it. They thought all the fantastical things in Scripture, all the miracles and such, were pure goofiness. Just ridiculous. They taught that this life is all there is. There won't be a resurrection and there won't be an afterlife. And so in our text today, they've come to confront and embarrass the world's most famous rabbi. And as you can guess, it doesn't end very well for them. Let's dive in, shall we? Point number one in your outline is the scandal of the resurrection. The scandal of the resurrection. Look at verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. You see, the Sadducees only believed that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, were legit. So they only read the first five books. They totally dismissed the rest of the Old Testament. And since the first five books of the Bible don't talk about a resurrection or an afterlife, then they concluded there must be no such thing. But they also believed that the very idea of an afterlife is dangerous. It's dangerous. Now, why do they think that? Well, they thought that because, you know, if people truly believe they would live eternally, then they would be more careless with this life. They would take a lot more chances. They would be a lot more frivolous. Also, revolutionaries would take more chances and risks in disrupting the social order. You see, if you really believed in a resurrection, it would alter virtually everything about your life. The things you do, the things you think, and the things you value. You would be more bold, more fearless, more loving, more hopeful, etc. And this was threatening to the wealthy ruling class. People like the Sadducees. Ah, we can't have these peasants going around living with hope. No, that's unacceptable to the Sadducees. They didn't like the fact that the idea of a resurrection altered how people lived. 
It threatened their control. But the resurrection not only alters how you live, it alters why you live. The Sadducees had built their lives around their wealth, their influence, and their power. They built a life essentially around themselves. And hey, at this time it was stable and secure. They were in control. They were the elites. Which is why belief in the resurrection was so threatening to them. If you believe in an afterlife, then everything you've ever lived for, all the wealth and power and prestige and control that you could accrue, all of a sudden doesn't mean all that much. It actually all amounts to squat if there is an afterlife. Many of you know that my mom just passed away a few months ago. For as long as I knew her, my mom was obsessed with having all these like little knickknacks and trinkets. And we just thought it was silly, you know, she would collect all of these, what we thought were just kind of meaningless items that she would find in yard sales and different places uh, that my dad would get for her and that, you know, just kind of little meaningless knickknacks, but she loved them. She was all about this stuff. And she was like this for as long as I can remember. She talked about them constantly. You know, I know when we, we moved her here to Alabama, she's always, she was always talking about making sure she had every little trinket in place. And y'all brought this, didn't you? Now y'all make sure to bring this, didn't you? She wanted to make sure she had all of these little things in line. And she talked about them constantly. They meant a lot to her. But you know, when she got real sick, she came to the end of her life. She didn't talk about those knickknacks near as much as she did before. In fact, she really didn't talk about them at all. We were the ones that would bring them up. But she didn't hardly ever want to talk about them. Now, why is that? Why is that? It's because it suddenly dawned on her that all of those trinkets and knickknacks don't really matter in light of the afterlife. She can't take a single knickknack with her, not even one. And so instead, you know what she wanted to talk about in the last couple weeks? She wanted to talk about family and Jesus. Family and Jesus. And that's what belief in the afterlife does. It puts things in perspective. It makes the things of earth grow strangely dim. All the things you've worked for your whole life suddenly don't look very important anymore. Suddenly, everything boils down to family and Jesus. And the Sadducees will have none of it. They'll have none of this dangerous and scandalous idea of a resurrection. And so in our story today, they are confronting Jesus, trying to see just how dangerous he is. If he believes in such a foolish thing 
as an afterlife, then he must be dealt with immediately. And Jesus makes no bones about it, as you see in our text. He explicitly affirms the existence of an afterlife. He says in verse 25, when the dead rise. It doesn't get more explicit than that. Jesus indeed believes in a resurrection. But now the question is, what is the resurrection? What is the afterlife? What is it all about? Well, Jesus gives us a really profound answer and some extreme insight into what the afterlife will be like. Which brings us to number two in your outline. Point number two is the nature of the resurrection. The nature of the resurrection. In verses 19 through 23, the Sadducees come to Jesus with a theological riddle. One they are sure he won't be able to answer. The riddle is this. There was a married man who had six brothers. Now, if he died and left his wife without a child, and then she married the second brother, and he died without leaving the woman a child, and then she married the third brother who died without a child, and so on, all the way down to the last brother, and then finally the woman dies without a child. A woman married seven times to seven men without ever getting a divorce, without ever having a child. In the afterlife, who will she be married to? Now, this is an absurd and over-the-top story from the Sadducees. And likely, it is intentional. They're intentionally being absurd because they want to embarrass Jesus with an absurd question to force him to give a complicated and absurd answer. But you know, I've heard this kind of situation presented to me multiple times over the years, mainly by widows. They want to know, who will they be married to in heaven? their first husband or their second husband. So Jesus gives us a two-part answer to this riddle. Look at verse 24. Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? So the Sadducees don't know the Scriptures like they think they do, and they don't know the power of God like they think they do. Here's what Jesus is getting at. The Sadducees and many folks today's concept of the afterlife is that the next life is just a continuation of this life. Only, you know, probably better. It's probably better. It's life as we know it now, only with angels and harps and lots of singing. You know, there'll be a lot of golf being played, you know, a lot of fishing. You know, we'll still be playing Xbox. Uh, we'll just be playing Xbox with angels. That's the only difference. So for us, heaven will contain the same basic categories that we understand life to be about in the here and now. That's why the Sadducees give this particular riddle to Jesus. They assume the afterlife would contain the same categories as this life. 
So, who is going to be this woman's husband in the afterlife? Look at what Jesus says in verse 25. He says, When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying that what makes the resurrection so amazing is not that it's just this life going on forever, but that it is an entirely different kind of life altogether. You won't live life as you lived it here. You will live life as the angels do. You see, earthly categories and parameters don't fit in Jesus' heaven. Heaven is a totally unique and spectacular mode of existence. It is a category of life all unto itself. This physical life is only a dim shadow of what resurrection life will look like. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, quote, Christ will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating with such energy and wisdom and joy and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly His own boundless power, delight, and goodness. This is what we're in for. Nothing less end quote you see the reason why there will be no marriage in heaven is that we won't need it anymore we won't need it and the afterlife marriage is superfluous what marriage is here for us and all that it entails the intimacy the friendship the comfort the protection the love etc these will all be found at infinite levels in Christ Jesus himself. And so, who will this woman be married to in heaven? She will be married to Jesus. Now, you might worry at this point. This might stress you out because, hey, I know you love your spouse. And so this... This might have you a little anxious right now. You might worry and ask, okay, so what will my relationship be like with my spouse in heaven? And my answer is this. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know exactly what it will look like. But what I do know for sure is this. It will be far, far, far better than it is now. That's all that I know. That's all that I can tell you. So there's no need to panic about this. Remember, you're not taking your worldly categories into the next life. You're stepping into a brand new life. A brand new mode of existence with brand new categories. That, by the way, so far outweigh this mode of existence and this world's categories that if you had a trillion words, you could never begin to describe it. You couldn't even begin 
to describe the wonders of the afterlife. And this is why Christians have absolutely no reason to fear death. None. Death for believers is a gift from God. It is God graciously moving us from this life of pain and suffering and sin and darkness into his kingdom of light forever and ever and ever. You don't believe me? You're still a little stressed out about death and about the afterlife? Well, Jesus takes it one step farther, which brings us to our last point. Point number three in your outline is the promise of the resurrection. The promise of the resurrection. Look at verses 26 and 27. Jesus says, Now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses and the account of the burning bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, remember, the Sadducees only took the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, as authoritative. Only the first five. And because they believed the Pentateuch never spoke of a resurrection, then there must not be a resurrection. And Jesus says, think again. You actually don't know anything about the Scriptures, if that's your stance, is what Jesus tells them. And he makes his argument from the Pentateuch, from the book of Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible. And his argument is astonishing. Look at it. Look at verse 26. He says, now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What Jesus is saying is this. During the time of Moses, it was well after the deaths of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God comes to Moses through a burning bush in the desert. And he speaks to him from the bush and says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus' conclusion is this. If God is a God of the dead, then he couldn't tell Moses, I am am the God of Abraham. No. He would have said, I was the God of Abraham. But God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. And so God says to Moses, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Which means Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. They still live. When God called Moses to free the Hebrews from their slavery and bondage 
to the Egyptians. Moses asked God, he said, who shall I say sent me? And God told Moses, you tell them, I am sent you. I am sent you. Don't you see? <laughs> Not only does the Pentateuch speak of a resurrection, it gives us the greatest promise of resurrection in the Bible. God's very name is a promise of eternal life. He is the great I am. And he always will be. One of the most tragic and most heart-wrenching phrases you'll ever hear in this life is the phrase, I was. I was a mother. I was a husband. I was a son. I was a success. These phrases tell us that once was is no longer. Sudden deaths or sins or violations of trust have derailed who we are and where we were headed. And they force us to say, I was. But look at what God says. Even though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob succumb to the effects of old age and they die, God's promise to them and to you is this, I am. I am. Though the world around you is crumbling and moving and breaking apart, and the ground underneath you is shaking like an earthquake in the desert, God says to you, I am. I am the fixed point of history. I am unmovable. I am unshakable. I never move. I never change. Even through suffering and death, God is still the I am to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the great promise the wondrous promise of the resurrection amazingly has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or Moses. It doesn't. It has nothing to do with our church attendance, our good works, our faithfulness to God, our tithing record. None of that. The incredible promise of resurrection is never based on us. It is based solely on the great I am himself and him alone. It is his free gift to us. But you say, okay, but how do I get the gift? How do I get eternal life? 
this language of I am, is always on the lips of Yahweh in the Old Testament. But it's also on the lips of Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus says in John's Gospel, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. My friends, Jesus Christ is the great I am. And he is the great I am come in the flesh. Born to a virgin in a lowly stable in Bethlehem. But the mind-blowing question then is this. Why? Why? Why would the great I Am of the Old Testament come to us in human flesh? Because you and I had absolutely no chance of entering God's afterlife on our own. We had no chance of being resurrected. We had no chance of entering heaven. We have been sinful and rebellious against our Creator our entire lives. We were lost in the darkness. And so, I am himself came to bring us home. He came to take our place and to bear the punishment we rightfully deserve for our sin and rebellion. You see, Jesus is the bread of life because his body was broken and torn apart like bread. Jesus is the light of the world because at the cross, his beautiful light was snuffed out. Jesus is the good shepherd because he gave his life for his sheep. And Jesus is the resurrection and the life because he was crucified and cast into the grave for you and for me. So, if you're here today and you worry about the afterlife, or you're still afraid of death, let me remind you of who it was hanging on that cross at Calvary. It wasn't a prophet. It wasn't a good teacher. It wasn't a rabbi. It was the great I am hanging on that cross for you and for me. So many people have told me over the years that they cannot be saved. They say, because pastor, you don't know what I've done. You don't know who I am. And then I respond and I say, well, if that's what you think, then you don't know who it was hanging on the cross for you. You don't know who it was. It wasn't just somebody on the cross 
It wasn't just some wise sage. It wasn't just some random preacher from Nazareth. No, it was the great I am in the flesh, dying and suffering and bleeding for you. And one drop of his blood is so powerful that if you were 10,000 times more sinful than you are right now, that one drop of his blood would wipe them all away in an instant. In an instant, your sin would be done. And it's because of who shed that blood. It was the great I am. The gospel message, in essence, is this. I am died so that you will never have to say, I was. You see, when Jesus returns, all the sad things in your life will come untrue. Because the great I am became our great substitute. And if by faith we are crucified with Him, then we will be resurrected with Him too. That's why a pastor I like to listen to, he always ends his sermons with this. And I'm going to end this sermon with it. He says this, he says, Let us then eat drink and be merry for tomorrow we live forever let's pray